0: Switch gears to Zechariah. I mean, let's talk about, let's talk about a guy who God called uh, to, to preach his word to, to the office of a prophet, particularly, uh, right around the year 500 B.C. Um, Zechariah is the, the longest of the minor prophets. There are 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament, and because Zechariah is the longest, you can call him the, the, the major minor prophet. Um, and he was a priest as well as a prophet. So you'll hear some priestly themes going on in this book, and he's one of the most quoted of the Old Testament prophets that you'll find in the New Testament. So you're going to, as we move through these 14 chapters, you're going to hear things that are going to sound familiar to you because you've heard them quoted in the Gospels or in Revelation in particular, um, very, very frequently quoted, uh, sprinkled all throughout the New Testament. So Zechariah was ministering around 520 BC. This was a, uh, you know, several decades following the destruction of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was destroyed by Babylon, and all of the inhabitants, all the remaining people of God who were in Judea, who were in Jerusalem, were all deported, and they were taken off to Babylon. And they waited, and they languished for 70 years, waiting for God to fulfill his promise To restore his people. And under the ministry of Zechariah and Haggai, uh, they who had returned after the Persians conquered Babylon, the Persian king Cyrus issued an edict to return all the exiles back to Jerusalem. And so Zechariah and Haggai, the, the, the minor prophet right before Zechariah, They were uh, encouraging God's people with the promises of God's restoration. So that's all all well and good, and and that's a nice little historical summary of what was going on biblically 500 years before Jesus came. But can I just ask maybe a blunt question? In our heart of hearts, what do you and I really expect to learn... (laughs) From a minor prophet's ancient words to a bunch of returning refugees in a war-torn city in the Middle East 2,500 years ago. Like, is this relevant? Do you, ever, do you ever wonder those kinds of things? Like, why are we gathered together? You can be doing so many other things. Here we are gathered together to read the words of a 2,500-year-old prophet in a a destroyed city in the middle of the Middle East. It's kind of remarkable. So let's see if God has anything to say to us. You want to stand in honor of his word? I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying... The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear. Or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we acknowledge these are, these are ancient words. Uh, these are spoken to uh, people far removed from us. And we are tempted to wonder, are they, uh, are they for us in any way? Uh, so I pray that you would send your spirit, that you would minister to our hearts, that you would help us to hear your word and to receive your word, to pay attention to your word and to be restored according to your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Uh, You'll find an outline in your bulletin that insert. And so I want to talk about the Lord who remembers. He doesn't forget our circumstances. Uh, And the Lord also helps us who tend to forget. Uh, He reminds us of what's true. And furthermore, the Lord returns to us. Uh, he's um, He's not like us. He doesn't write us off and he doesn't turn a cold shoulder toward us. He returns to us. So let's let's talk about the Lord who remembers. In verse 2, we read a very sort of blunt statement where God says through Zechariah that the Lord was very angry with your fathers. God remembers our sins. Um, when he forgives us, he, he, in a sense, he forgets our sins as far as the east is from the west. But, but let's be honest, the Lord's not forgetful. He's not senile. He's not, you know, somebody who just is absent-minded. Instead, He knows everything, and he's omniscient, and so he does remember, and he does hold us accountable, and he does get angry um, when when we sin, and so this is something that's kind of troubling to us because the anger of God is something that we don't particularly like to hear about. Um, We love to to praise God and thank God for all kinds of of attributes, you know, fancy word for just his, his character, Uh, And we'll praise him for his kindness, we'll praise him for his love, we'll thank him for his provision, all these things. When's the last time you, (laughs) when's the last time you were praying and worshiping God and said, God, I thank you for your anger? (laughs) We don't go there. Why? Because we don't know what to do with God's anger. It's troubling to us. Instead, we do all kinds of other things. We've got different reactions. Let me just name three of them. One of them, you know, one one reaction that we have to his anger is we'll just dismiss it. We we deny that it's true. God doesn't get angry. No, that's okay. We're in the prophets, and that's the Old Testament God. But hey, the God in the New Testament, um, he's nice. He doesn't get angry. And we'll deny uh, his anger. Or we're afraid of it. Oh no! God's angry at me. Run for cover! You know we don't want to. We don't want to get involved uh, in that anger. We just cower, uh, or we we will just outright reject His anger. You know, I don't want to have anything to do with a God who gets angry. I won't worship that God, little G. You know, in our in our pride and our arrogance, uh, we just reject Him. So so let's let's talk about angry anger. Why why do you and I get angry? What makes you angry? You and I get angry when somebody writes us off. You and I get angry when somebody uh, does harm to us. Uh, um, We had a a phone call the other week from our credit card company. I was like, oh, that's an interesting call. Um, And I was told that there was a charge, $93 and some cents, I think, uh, from a gas station in Florida only problem was I happened to be in Virginia. And, and so, obviously, somebody had gotten my credit card number. Uh, I'd been skimmed. And that, uh, thankfully, had the you know, fraud protection on my card. And they called me up and said, well, this looks suspicious. You're, you don't seem to be hanging out in Florida right now. And, uh, and thankfully, that had a happy ending. But I, I was upset. Um, somebody had taken advantage of my privacy, taken advantage of my, my credit. And, um, and it could have ended poorly. Thankfully, um, that wasn't the case. But you know, so that's a minor infraction. But what happens if somebody gets a hold of your your, your social security number, and uh, and they take your your ID, they they steal your identity? Um, that's a bad thing. You get angry about that. Uh, or not, somebody just doesn't steal your ID; they steal your your idea, um, your project that you were going to do for your science experiment. Or somebody gets a hold of your plans for the next you know. Uh, quarter at work, and they take credit for that. that makes you upset, that angers you. And of course of course, when people hurt you, if somebody betrays you, if somebody lies to you, if somebody harms you, if somebody uh, is unfaithful to you, you are hurt and you are angry and we get angry when somebody else gets hurt. It should make us angry that the Taliban blew up an ambulance uh, in the middle of Kabul and 95 people died. It should make you angry that a, uh, a licensed doctor took advantage of the trust and the goodwill of hundreds of. Uh, female USA gymnasts and abuse them. It should make you angry. It should make you satisfied that there is justice in a sense. You know, this guy's going to spend the rest of his life behind bars. He's not going to be able to hurt any more little girls. Isn't it right to feel angry about some of those things? Where does that come from? It comes from a sense of right and wrong. It comes from a sense of rightness. Righteousness has been violated and been turned upside down, and and evil, or wickedness, or just infractions like that are are taking place, and that's what makes us angry. Well, how would you feel if, in your anger, somebody responded to you like this? You know, you shouldn't be angry. Good people don't get angry, and they deny or dismiss your anger, or they just run for cover. Oh, no! Uh, (laughs) You know, angry, and I don't want to have anything to do with them. I'm just, you know, going to you know, hide, or uh, if they just reject you. I can't stand it when you're angry and I don't wanna have anything to do with you, some overlap with the the fear thing, right? How how would you feel if somebody responded to your anger in any one of those ways? you'd be upset. It would sort of add to your anger in a a sense. We want people to validate our anger. We want people to understand what makes us upset. Why is it so hard for us to validate God's anger? Why do we dismiss it? Why do we reject it? Why do we fear it? Especially given the fact that this is God. It's good news, people, that, that God gets angry. Why? Because it tells us that God cares about what is right and what is wrong, that he not only has the capacity to get angry, but he does get angry, and he gets angry for good reasons. He's not like us in the ways that we fly off in our unrighteous anger. Instead, he is never selfish. He's never unrighteous, and therefore we can trust that God's anger is good. We'll, we'll, We'll deal more with this in a little bit. Let's talk about how God not only he remembers um, the, the sins of the fathers, right? And it made God angry. They were you, know, turning righteousness upside down and, and, and doing all kinds of stuff that was bringing harm uh, to the earth, to the, the image of God in one another, and so on. And in this passage, in these first six verses of Zechariah, we're introduced some, to some, some truths about who God is, beginning with Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah himself is a clue. His name means, it has the root, uh, the suffix of Zechariah's name is, is short for Yahweh. Um, so Zechariah's name means Yahweh remembers. That's what his name means. And so that's a clue right off the bat that, that God is sending Zechariah, um, and, God, and Zechariah is identifying as the one who reminds people that God remembers. Um, he, was a, he as I said earlier, uh, Zechariah's ministry uh, was, uh, he was a contemporary of Haggai and their role was to remind people that God cares about um, his restored um, and, and returning refugees and to encourage them to rebuild the temple. And we'll talk about why that's important later on. But Zechariah was reminding God's people that God remembers so uh, this is not just God in the generic sense. This is, you know, you see the, uh, in your translation, whether it's in the bulletin or in your Bible, every time you see the word Lord in these, in these verses, it's always capitalized. All four letters are capitalized. Um, some of you know what that means. If you're new to the Bible or, or new to the church, that's a, a, a way that our English translations uh, reminding us this is a special word, Yahweh. It's not the generic name for God, but the covenantal name for God. So when you see all four of those letters, L-O-R-D, capitalized, that's our English translators way of saying this is God's covenantal name. It's a special name. Um, you remember in, in um, hundreds of years ago, you know, uh, when people addressed one another more formally uh, so if you are a fan of, um, of Pride and Prejudice or Emma or any of the um, Jane Austen stories, you know that, like, so there's Mr. Darcy and Miss Bennett, right? And they have this beautiful relationship of misunderstanding and pride and prejudice and whatever. Um, and, and sense and sensibility. Uh, and, and, and they're all, you know, they're, they finally have this wonderful denouement and they understand each other and they fall in love and so on. Well, up to the point where, where where they are married, they respond to each other and address one another as Mr. Darcy, (laughs) yeah, Mr. Darcy and Miss Bennett, I thought I said um, Mr. Bennett or something like that, Um, Mr. Darcy and Miss Bennett, and then when they get married, that's when, that's when, you know, Mr. Darcy calls Miss Bennett by her first name, what's her first name? Elizabeth. Everybody knows that. Oh, Elizabeth, I love you. And that's when, after they exchange that covenantal promise, that's when Miss Bennett, Elizabeth, can call Mr. Darcy by his first name. What's his first name? Who knew? Who said Fitzwilliam? Very good, Riley. Yep. Fitzwilliam! Oh, Fitzwilliam, I love you. It's almost as weird as Essen. Um... (laughs) But they reserved that kind of intimate exchange for a kind of relationship that had protection and had promises attached to it. It's called a covenant. And so when God appears to Moses in the burning bush, he says, Moses, you're in a a new special relationship with me now, and I don't want you to call me the name that the rest of the nations call, call me. I want you to call me Yahweh. I am that I am. And he just keeps, you know, adding uh, and revealing more of himself and adding people into this relationship, this covenantal relationship, to where the whole nation of Israel eventually, you know, knew that Yahweh was God's intimate name, uh, the name that included promises and protection of of the covenant, that, that Yahweh was part of the vocabulary of their covenant now. And so when you see Zechariah using that covenantal name, it's a promise and it's a reminder of God's protection that God remembers. God remembers. And also, you notice at least five times here in these verses, there's another kind of formula here the Lord of hosts, uh, literally Yahweh Sabaoth. Um, Lord of hosts is a reminder to God's people that this isn't just the intimate covenantal God that they're dealing with. This is the, the covenantal God who also is king of everything and everyone and every group of every being that, that exists everywhere, the Lord of hosts. More, most, most, most specifically, the Lord of the heavenly hosts, the heavenly armies. This is a powerful God. This is the God who's in charge. This is the king of kings. And, and, and it makes sense to get on his side because no other uh, competitor can match him. Uh, and this is why, um, you know, when, when typically it's around Reformation Sunday. Last Sunday in October, we'll sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And it's got this wonderful verse uh, that Martin Luther penned. Did, did we in our own strength confide or trust? Our striving would be losing. We'd be done for We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. Oh, well, who's that? Ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord Sabaoth, His name. Do you ever ever sing a mighty fortress and go, Lord Sabbath? Um, No, it's not Sabbath. Sabaoth, Lord of hosts, Lord of the heavenly armies. From age to age, the same, and he must win the battle. Not because we really hope he wins the battle, but because he's the Lord of the heavenly armies, and there is no other outcome for this this battle. There's not going to be any other possibility than Jesus wins, because he's the Lord of hosts. So, God has demonstrated his covenantal love, his power, his remembrance, in in, in real time, to these returning refugees. Why? Because such a great kingdom and world power as Babylon had actually been defeated by the Persians. And, And who else but God could turn the heart of Cyrus, the Persian king, to want to return all the exiles back to Judea and back to Jerusalem and then give them an edict rebuild the temple. That was the Persian king telling them to do that. And who else but the Lord of all nations and all armies, especially the heavenly armies, he's the only one who would have power to do that. And now finally under Darius, 20 years later, Zechariah and Haggai are being used to encourage God's people to build this place where they can meet with God so God remembers, and God controls all armies, and all, uh, orchestrates all things. And because God remembers, um, and, and because we forget, God has to remind us of some things. God has to remind us, in verse 3, for instance, that we are the ones who have wandered. He hasn't gone anywhere, we did. Uh, and so he says, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. God is reminding Israel, they've turned away from him. The call uh, to to turn or to return is is repeated over and over in the Bible. It's particularly prominent in the prophets. God is continually calling his people to repentance. And that includes includes us. Repentance uh, is a a word, it's an often misunderstood word, but at its root, it just means to change. It means to change your mind it means to change your affections. It means to change your behavior. Most specifically, it's a change of your mind that leads to those other results. So, uh, it's 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 misunderstood. It's a weird word. It's complicated. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, for people outside of kind of Christian circles, they don't. I think they've even lost the the the, um, the language of repentance. They don't even have it. Um, they don't even know what to think of it. Uh, for those who do remember, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a religious word. Uh, I think for the most part, it has a really negative connotation. They think that the only people that talk about repentance anymore are cranky Christians, right? Just kind of people that don't smile and people that are, are really serious about religion. Those are the people that use the word. Um, and sadly, that's just really, really wrong. It's really, really far from what repentance uh, means. Because, uh, as we're going to see here in just a second, you'll be surprised who uses the word. But anyway, repentance is um, is multifaceted. It's like a diamond, and it's got lots of different angles to it that are really beautiful to see. Uh, So let's talk about repentance requiring honesty, humility, and hope. Those are at least three things I want you to, to remember about repentance. It requires honesty. Repentance requires the honest admission that I've blown it which is hard to do, but it's really freeing uh, once, you, once you can do that because it means you don't have to pretend anymore that you're omnicompetent and that you've got all your stuff together and that you never mess up. Um, and so you can stop pretending, you can stop lying, you can stop disappointing people. Instead, you can just say, I, I messed up. Uh, so repentance requires honesty first and foremost. And then it requires humility. Because what humility tells us is that I didn't just blow it, but I, I sinned and I've offended God. I need to humble myself. I need to confess what I've done, and I need to do that before God, and I need to do that before whoever the other person in this equation is that I've offended. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's your child. Maybe it's a a buddy at school or somebody at work, whatever. But it takes humility to say, I am at fault. I'm, I'm guilty, and guilt is something we cannot abide. We will do everything in our power. I would do a backflip if it meant I didn't have to admit I was guilty. Because guilt requires humility. And it means that I'm accountable. It means that I actually deserve um, to be held responsible for what I've done wrong. I need to face the music and we don't wanna do that either. Accountability is hard. We don't wanna suffer. But the good news of repentance is that it also requires hope. Because God doesn't call us to return to him in order to, to smack us. God calls us to return to him in order to forgive us. But repentance fund, fundamentally, and, it's, and as we look to Jesus, we're looking to one who's going to, to pardon our sin, not hold us accountable for our sin because Jesus took our sin on himself. That's the beauty of the gospel, is that there's one who stands in our place miraculously and marvelously to take what we deserve on himself. That's what the cross is about. He is our substitute. We we put our faith in him. Uh, God's judgment for sin goes on Jesus, and instead we get God's approval in exchange. That's an incredible deal. Incredible deal. That's what repentance does for us. So this is this Repentance, I want you to hear it synonymous with this kind of invitation from God. I'm not calling you to come to me and to repent in order to smack you down. I'm calling you to come and repent in order to love you and to pardon you and to invite you back into relationship with me. That's what repentance offers us. Um, One of the scholars and, and preachers, Walt Kaiser, says this, no other single word epitomizes the prophets more accurately than this single word to turn or return. Repentance from sin is the prerequisite for any fellowship with the living Lord. Repentance from sin is a prerequisite to any fellowship with the living Lord. It goes like this. Our sins are what make us guilty. I get it. Our sins disqualify us for heaven. Our sins actually are what make us deserving of hell. But can I tell you something? That it's not ultimately our sins that keep us out of heaven, or it's not ultimately our sins that send us to hell. What keeps us out of heaven is unrepentance. Unrepentance. Unrepentance is what sends somebody to hell. God is fully willing and and inviting us to come to him to be forgiven and pardoned. And it's our unwillingness to repent that keeps us in a bad place. So repentance is this prerequisite for any fellowship with the living Lord, and it's so important and so beautiful that it gets repeated over and over and over again. Like I said, you might be surprised by who? John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And you go, oh, well, that's John the Baptist. He might have been one of those cranky Christians after all. I don't know. But then you've got the guy who came along and sort of plagiarized John the Baptist's sermon. Same sermon, identical sermon. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. You know who preached that sermon? Jesus. Jesus. It's a beautiful word. It's not for cranky Christians. It's this expression of invitation from a God who loves us and reminds us to come to him. And he says, Don't be like your fathers. In verse 4, Don't be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, return. From your evil ways and your evil deeds but they did not hear or pay attention to me declares the Lord so don't be like your fathers don't be like don't be like the uh, religious uh, pretenders who are acting like they know God but are hypocrites you know and Jesus dealt with these people all the time hey when you pray don't be like the people over here who are doing it for show when you give don't be like the people over here who just want everybody to applaud their gifts when you fast, don't be like the people over here who are making a big to do of you know, the fact that they're making this sacrifice. So don't be like those who are just pretending. Don't be like your fathers who would not hear me or pay attention to me. It's a, it's a, it's a clear call for us not to be like those who say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus. I love the Lord, I go to church and all that, but they have no idea what's in this book. They're not listening. They're not hearing God's word. This is a great invitation to us. It's the start of a new year, sort of. We're just, you know, kind of wrapping up January. But if you're not in a regular habit of reading the Bible, how can you say that you really are desiring to hear God? This is where he speaks to us. And in prayer, you know, just the the regular disciplines of being a disciple. Um, So don't be like your fathers who are saying, yeah, I'm in a relationship with God, I'm close to God, but but they're not hearing his word. Uh, Don't be like your fathers who aren't paying attention to me, um, you know, who will say, oh, yeah, I'm spiritual and I, I love the Lord and, you know, and so on. But their lives are full with other things. We're always paying attention to something. Have you ever thought about that? There's always something that I'm paying attention to. There's always something that's at the center of my soul. There's always something that that I'm I'm circling around and and that I'm in orbit around because this is the center of my attention. It's the center of my being, uh, and it's it's governing my life, my thoughts, my actions, my attitude, everything. What, What is at the center of my soul, moment to moment, day to day, week in, week out? And the life of a Christian is to keep Jesus at the center, and in the life of a Christian, repents of all the times we, we go, okay, checking in, what's at the center of my soul? And I realize, oh, you know what's at the center of my soul today? It's money. Or, oh, you know what's at the center of my soul today? It's sex. Or oh, you know what's at the center of my soul today? It's it's food and, and beer and wine and gluttony or you know, addictions or whatever. Oh, oh, you know what's at the center of my soul today? My job. Oh, you know what's at the center of my soul today? My grades. And we check in and we go, ah, Lord, I'm sorry. And I'm going to turn back to you and you be the center of my soul. Don't be like your fathers who weren't paying attention to me. So the call is pay attention to God. (laughs) Replace whatever that idol is. It could be good things. Hey, you know, your job's a good thing, but don't let it be the center of your soul. Your marriage is a good thing, but don't let it be the center of your soul. Your kids are a good thing, but don't let them be the center of your soul. Jesus is the center of your soul, and when we realize that I'm off center. I've gotten something. I've gotten kind of sideways. Then repent, return. We go back to Jesus, and He lovingly forgives us, and He resumes the center again. So don't be like those who are pretending, acting like Christians, acting like you know they are on board when they have something else that they're paying attention to. So this is the role of repentance. It keeps calling us back to the center. And you know, as I said before, you're never going to be a Christian unless you turn back to the one who is the center of your soul. You're never going to become a Christian unless you repent. And we're never going to grow as a Christian. We're never going to have real power in the Christian life unless we adopt that cycle and lifestyle of repentance. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. We keep turning from the the things that are competing for our attention and keeping Jesus in his, his rightful place. This is the place of power. This is the place of a real intimacy with God. So the gospel, contrary to popular um, um, you know, ways that it's communicated, the gospel doesn't just say, uh, invite Jesus into your heart. Um, I, I was, when, when Kathy and I were in Orlando, when I was in seminary, uh, I, I, I was a part-time youth pastor for the last two of the three years we were down there, and I was this big downtown um, mainline Presbyterian Church, the PCUSA at the time, and, um, and, and it was, you know, there were really good things going on there, but the trouble that I had was for two years, I kept hearing the pastor on Sunday mornings uh, make these invitations. Hey, come to Jesus. You need Jesus. Invite Jesus into your heart. Your life's going to be so much better if you follow Jesus. I mean, those are all true statements, but, they, but he never talked about the cross, he never talked about repentance, he never talked about atonement, he never talked about turning. Turning from this world, confessing my sin, confessing my guilt, and then receiving Jesus as my Savior, and following him in a life of, of discipleship. This is the, what God continues to remind us of, and the good news is that the more we do that, the more we are restored, the more we get over the things that make life miserable for us and for others, things like fear and pride. And um, let's talk about anger again. Let's talk about anger again. Anger's good. Anger can be godly. But we know, don't we, that anger often gets out of line. Uh, Listen to James chapter 1. James says, Know this, my beloved brothers, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I was at a pastor's retreat Monday and Tuesday, and one of the the talks was about this verse. Be slow to speak, slow uh, to anger, quick to listen. Um, the the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So clearly there's a distinction between the anger of God and the anger of man. And what does the anger of man do? Um, Well, the anger of man gets angry when I I mess up. I get angry at myself when I fail. Um, And I get angry at others when they fail. You do too. I mean, right? I get get angry when... (laughs) How's this, the anger of man? I get angry when I succeed and nobody acknowledges it. <laughs> and I get angry when I fail and uh, I can be angry at myself. And then if somebody else exposes that failure, then I get angry at them. I'm just, I'm a mess and so are you. That's, man, that's the anger of man. So the anger of God is, it gets angry for right reasons. The anger of man gets angry for selfish reasons, self-serving reasons. And then we lash out and we punish people with our anger. And instead, what the gospel does is because we have Jesus at the center, uh, as we hear and and as we pay attention to, remember those, those phrases, this is what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be hearing God and paying attention to him. As we hear the gospel, that Jesus died for my sins, my failings, and he gives me his rightness, his righteousness. That's mine by faith. And when I'm living out of that, something remarkable happens to me and to you to grow and to to address our unrighteous anger and to put on a a more God-like anger to where I don't have to be so bent up and defensive and upset when I fail because, well... Why am I upset? Because in, in my flesh or when I'm man-centered or essence centered I feel like I've you know failed and I'm not behaving the way that I imagine I can be. But if Jesus is at the center, I don't have to be afraid of my failings. I can confess them, I can admit them, I don't have to hide. I don't have to be defensive. Um, and Kathy's back there nodding, going, mm-hmm, yep. L- believe it, Essen, you're preaching it, believe it. Uh, so that's how that works. And then in, in when uh, I get exposed, well, you know, Jesus took my shame at the cross, and why am I so bent out of shape over what other people think of me? I have the smile of God. And it just really decreases the pressure. It relaxes me. It keeps me from being as angry as I might be. It makes me slower to be angry. It makes my anger a lot more um, like God's anger, When I can get angry at the right things instead of the wrong things. So as I pay attention to God, the gospel takes center stage. You see how that works? When you have the righteousness of Jesus, you're not trying to adopt your own self-righteousness. You're not living out of that. And when that's threatened, you don't get angry. You can't be angry if Jesus is your righteousness. You are righteous by faith in him, not because of your own efforts. So what have we talked about? God remembers. He sent Zechariah. Yahweh remembers to his people to remind his people to turn, to come back to him, and to to be honest and humble and hopeful uh, because ultimately the Lord is returning to them. Look again at verse 3. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. Folks, the gospel is the good news that God continually turns his face toward us. You can't sin bad enough to not be forgiven. You can't be good enough to earn his smile. He just loves you. The gospel is a good news that his face is turned toward you. He is ready to forgive. He freely pardons. The only thing in the way of you and him is our unrepentance. And so when God says, return to me and I will return to you, it's that invitation. Look, I'm ready. I'm willing. It's up to you now. And Zechariah and Haggai were commissioned by God to speak to God's people to build this demonstration of God's promise, a temple where they could come and meet with God and hear his word and be pardoned of their sins and enjoy intimacy with God. And that was that old covenant demonstration of God's promise, this place where they could come and hear God, meet with him, be forgiven, and live in fellowship with him. And then 500 years later, Along comes Jesus, Jesus who is the embodiment of the temple, the true temple. Uh, Jesus would say to his detractors, destroy this temple, uh, he meant his own body, and I will raise it up in three days. I will rebuild it in three days. He was pointing to himself. Why? Because Jesus was, was, was calling everybody to a new understanding of what it means to hear God, to meet with him, to receive his promise, to receive his pardon, to live in fellowship with him. That comes through Jesus, the true temple. And then we are ultimately looking forward to a day when Revelation tells us, John's vision, chapter 21, he said, I saw no temple in the city for the Lord himself is the temple. Like, there's no temple in the city because God's presence fills the earth, fills the new heaven and the new earth completely. You don't go to one particular place uh, to meet with God because everywhere is full of the glory of God and the new heaven and the new earth. And everywhere is full of the reminder that we live in His grace. And everywhere is full of the intimacy of relationship with Him. That's what we have to look forward to. And in this now and not yet time, we, we fellowship with God, we receive His pardon. We, we see his face in the face of Jesus, who has turned to us, and he will restore us. Uh, when that day comes, when the new heaven and the new earth are joined together, and God's presence fills this earth with, you know, saturates it, there's not any kind of dilution at all. What will it be like? Well, all sin will be removed. And we will see, we will experience for an eternity this, this, the, the commitment that God has to restore completely everything that's been broken by the fall. And that project has already begun. It's begun in each one of us who has repented and turned to Jesus. That project, as Richard Loveless says, began with repentance. Metanoia is the Greek word. Having a new mind about God, ourselves, and others. Repentance is the most dynamic inrush of the kingdom of God within ordinary history. When we repent, we enter the kingdom. And the kingdom enters history in a little larger measure through the kingdom entering each one of us. And we go into the world and we show the world what it looks like to repent of our sinful anger to repent of our fear, to repent of our pride, and to put on more of the love and peace and patience and joy and the fruit of the Spirit. What it means to be restored, not perfectly this side of heaven, but certainly a beginning. Let me close with this. I, I, like, I like how Jack Miller illustrates it. I'm just going to close with his description of it and hear this reminder to us of what God is doing in each of our lives. It's like God's restoration is like living in a dim room that appears clean and then pulling up the shades or turning on the light only to see that it, it, it's really dusty and dirty. Even though the room feels dirtier now than before, the dirt was there all along. And when we walk in the light of the Lord and struggle to love people, we begin to see more things wrong with us. What's more, the the devil says there's no hope for you. God couldn't love somebody as bad as you. The truth is that all along, you were this bad, this messed up, this selfish. It was only as the light came in that you saw all these problems. This is a signal, not for despair, but for hope. Don't be depressed by what you see, but rather... Learn to own up to your sins by faith and disown them by confessing them. And if you confess your sins, they really are forgiven. And you can go forward to love others in ways you never dreamed possible. Praise the Lord who's restoring all things. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your commitment to restore us. To restore what is broken in us by the fall and by our own sins. Lord, thank you for this invitation to be honest and humble and hopeful. To remember that you remember. And that you are calling us into relationship with you. Lord, please forgive our pride and our fear and our our, our human anger. Um, And Lord, help us to be restored more and more into the image of God. As we see that demonstrated in the person of Jesus May we be more loving like him. May we be more peaceful like him, more joyful like him as we learn to believe on him and receive his forgiveness and his restoration. And thank you for all these things in his name. Amen.